This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. And I'm David Shipley, the Post Opinion Editor, and I'm very excited to be joined by Michael Lewis, author of Going Infinite, about the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me, David. So, I mean, uh, you and I share a lot of favorite writers, and we're going to talk about a few of them tonight, but I want to start with one, um, Matt Levine of Bloomberg, who is a joy to read, but is also superb on finance and crypto. And he had this to say about your book, and I wanted to read I have it. not read any of it, so I'm hearing it. I'm You're this, hearing this. Hearing this is, no, this is, uh, this is live. Um, I'm about halfway through going infinite. I imagine, given his reading speed, he's finished, and I'm very much enjoying it. Many of the reviews that I have read of the book complain that Lewis does not sufficiently explain that Bankman-Fried is guilty, capital G, and bad, capital B, actually, but that's not the book that he wanted to write, or the one I want to read. He wanted to understand and explain Bankman-Fried's psychology and tell a good story. If you want to read a moral condemnation of crypto theft, you can get that anywhere. You go to Michael Lewis for character and story. So what was the character and story you saw with Sam? So um, should, can I start with how I like, met him? Because it, it, it goes yeah. back to that. Um, I met him, a friend called me in September of 2021 and said, I'm about to do this business deal with this guy you'll never have heard of, but he's got this crypto exchange. It's the fastest growing financial business I've ever seen. And we're going to swap shares in each other's companies. But before we do it, I just want to get a little more comfortable with who he is. Um, he met him. My friend had met Sam, um, but didn't have a read on him. He said he's, he's odd. And he also said that, like, nobody I know in finance knows him. And he, at that point, Sam had gone from, in the previous 18 months, Sam had gone from having basically zero dollars to having, according to Forbes magazine, $22.5 billion. And... Um, so I said, sure, I'll, you know, evaluate. I'll, why not? Uh, I never heard of FTX, I never heard of him. So he shows up on my front porch and we go for a walk. You're and in Berkeley. We're in Berkeley. He shows up, he, you know, he always looks like he just fell out of a dumpster. He comes out of his <laughs> Uber and he's got, he's got his shorts and a t-shirt, his hair's all over the place. And I go, this is the guy kind of thing. And, and he's always dressed for a hike and he's never been on one. So the hike took twice, <laughs> it, 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 it took twice as long as it should have talked. You've been on this walk yeah. and it just- almost Is he a fast walker? Almost, no, and he talks the whole time. Yeah. So he's out of breath the whole time. But he um, kind of, he, when he started to describe what had happened to him, um, just the previous 18 months, we, or we went back a, a bit further. This child of two Stanford academics mm -hmm. uh, who had collided with Wall Street found his calling in high-frequency trading, found that he was really good at something for the first time in his life when he collided with Wall Street. Um, the mind was started, started to reveal itself on this walk. And, and was he making eye contact? I mean, no, did you guys no, 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 no. look? Well, it was helping. It, it's, so it was, was it generally true, actually, without, yeah. except for this walk. I don't think I was ever with him when he wasn't doing something else while he was talking to me, that he was never comfortable just being there. He was comfortable, he was only comfortable if he had some other reality going on, mainly playing a video game. And I just got used to it. It was not even offensive after a little bit that he's just playing a video game while we're talking. Because I saw a, a clip of you talking to him and he's playing with a deck of cards. Right, and the only reason he's not playing a video game is the prosecutors had taken away his video games. Wow. And, and so he, he was compensating with all this other stuff. But my first reaction to him was when he was describing what had happened now that he had $22.5 billion. And it kind of, it amused him that he had, it was, he was bemused that it had gotten this big, it, that the world was shaping itself around him. And, and I thought, walking social satire, that, that, that it was like this, that he was, he was with this pile of money, colliding with celebrity culture, colliding with American politics, he was, he was giving a bunch of money away in politics, colliding with traditional philanthropy, colliding with the financial system, and I thought, and he had this kind of Martian view of it all. Like everything, he when he would describe know, politics. You mean from a distance? From a distance, looking. but he was like, he, he, his brain did interesting things. But it, it, he was 
really resistant to accepting any received wisdom from grown-ups. And he basically took the view that nobody knows anything about anything and I'm gonna figure it out. Which of course leads to catastrophic error, yeah. but it also leads to unusual insights. And one of the things that came out of his mouth on this walk that I thought was so interesting is he said, you know, one of the problems with politics is there's not enough money in it. I thought, I've never heard anybody say that. Uh, and he said, he said, you would think, given the stakes, you know, that like the president will preside over $15 trillion in budgets in a four-year term, that there'd be tens of or hundreds of billions of dollars going into presidential elections. Why isn't Warren Buffett spending $2 billion a year to influence this? And he said, with a little, quite a little bit of money, I'm having huge influence and I intend to have a lot more. Where do you think the idea that nobody knew anything came from? It's a really good question. Um, this business of thinking about things from the ground up, if I had to guess, like, there, there are, I think, psychological origins to it. You gotta go back to when he was, just who he is when he comes out of the womb. He has no ability to connect to people. Like, he, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he will be the first to say he doesn't really feel a lot of the things that other people feel. His childhood, um, shockingly socially isolated. Like I asked him for a list of people who could tell me anything about him before the age of 18, mm -hmm. and he said, I just can't really think of anybody. And I pushed and prodded and poked and got a couple of people, but it was really true. He basically spent the first 18 years more or less alone. I think that his inability to connect put him at a distance from like what might you might say to him. Mm -hmm. Everything's being evaluated without any kind of like trust any kind of like respect, any kind of, he's just hearing the words and it, as if they've never been spoken for the first time and evaluating them as the idea. And he, so I think part of that is that. He's like, like if you ask me why I'm quick to yeah. sort of like respect experts, because I sat in my father's study and listened to him and talked to me and I love my father and I trusted yeah. what came out of his mouth. Kind of goes back to that. Yeah. He has never had that. He never had the feeling. He never had the experience. But the, in any case, the effect of this is it's a bizarre situation with a very unusual character. And I had this notion about my books um, that it crept into my life before a couple of books ago that the books were so much more fun to write when I had a great character and a great situation and so much less fun to write if the characters were just hard to make swing on the page even when like the ideas were good. Brad Katsuyama, Flash Boys, nice Canadian. What a pain in the ass to write. I mean, it, it really- Does he know that? Is he this, does know that. I said that to him, I said, here? you know, you, the problem yeah. is I, I dug and dug yeah. and was looking for some kind of yeah. edge to this character. You took a lot of heat for Brad Katsuyama. I couldn't find it. You know, you yeah. couldn't find anything wrong with him. And, uh, and it was just, that's no fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was really a worthy book, but it, I didn't want to ever do that again. And, and it's, um, and, I, and so I had this idea, and it's a curious idea, and I may get completely screwed up by taking this idea into the future, but this time it worked. And, and the idea was, uh, I'm just, when I find a character, I'm just gonna worry about what the story is mm -hmm. later. And I'm gonna just follow that character, the, the character in the situation. It's, you know, Martian gets $22.5 billion overnight and is insisting on stress testing all of the institutions in our society. What happens, right? That's the sort of thing. And, um, and I don't know what's gonna happen. So I said to him, at the end of the walk, I said, I don't know what's gonna happen. This is wild, what's happening to you. Can I watch? The story would take care of itself. Now, this sounds like a great, it's, it's, it was kind of cool for a while, like, like the material you published, this. Zoom with Anna Wintour. Yep. Uh, th th there was material that was hysterical. <clears throat> it was a comedy, um, a little bit of a dark comedy because he, there was a sadness about him. Yeah. But, um, and it, it's, there was stuff, there was, there was like scenic material, there was, I, but I didn't have a story. And I got to, this is a funny uh, encounter, but I got to the beginning of November of, of, uh, of last year. And I was so uh, wit's end to do with all this material. I wasn't sure, I thought he was, I thought Sam was a great character. I thought there was a lot I could do with him, but I didn't have, you know, I don't like starting until I know the end of a story. And I didn't know where it ended. And I sat down with a film director who I use sometimes as a sort of sounding board for my stories. 
And I said to him, can I just tell you about this guy and what I know about him and what I've witnessed the last year? Because I'm not sure I, I'm going to do this. And I just wanted, should I do it? And when I was finished telling him, I, I spoke for half an hour. And when I was finished, he said, you know, you don't have a movie there because there's no third act. He said, but you, you're a good enough writer. You got to just fake it. He said, the stuff is so funny, interesting, weird. Just write it and dance your way out of the story. I mean, that, that's part of what I admire so much about this book and why I think it is, um, you know, a really deep book and an evolution for you for two reasons. And you should correct me if you think I'm wrong. Hey, well, if, well, you, if you say nice things, <laughs> I won't correct um, you. Yeah. No, they're both nice things. I mean, right. be, mean, number one is you wrote before you knew the ending. And we've got a trial going on now. You could have waited another year or two and seen what happened and landed in a place that would have made people feel safer and more comfortable and wrapped up. And I think you took, you made a really gutsy choice to go now. And I think the right, I mean, as a reader, the right one. The other thing is that Sam, as you point out, really is different from the characters that you're known to discover in this world in that um you know everybody you, thinks he's a crook everybody he thinks he's a crook. crook you are you are great at finding the person no one understands who is you know beaten over the head for years because he sees a different way to value a shortstop and all of a sudden the world comes around to this person's point of view and they're heroic sam that's unclear yeah um did you however, think however, 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 what, yeah. what gets me excited when there's, it, as a, just material, is when there's a, a gap between my perception of a thing and the, what the world's general yeah. perception of the thing. And I did always have, a, on the way up and the way down, a different view of him and it than I was reading in the newspapers or in magazines. So I had that feeling of a misapprehension that, uh, that, whether I'm right or wrong, yeah. whatever, I think I'm right. You know, that I think I've got something to describe, and when I describe it, it's going to feel like this is different to a reader. This is different yeah. than I thought this was. And that never, that was always true with him. Uh, so I had this, that same thing, um, that same feeling I had with Moneyball. Yeah. You know, this, this is that you think baseball is this thing, but it's actually this thing. Well, uh, why, why don't we back up on a few Sam basics? Because there, 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 yep, yep. there, there are two sort of, um, entities that are characters in the book. There's FTX and there's Alameda. Um, maybe you could explain a little bit about each and how they're connected. Yeah, so I'd like to quickly do two yeah. minutes on his Great. kind of career. So Sam Bankman-Fried, who was probably in almost any other era of American life, would have been a high school physics teacher. He comes out of the high frequency trading firms have gotten very good at turning math people into money people. And they go find the they go find people who are a particular kind of aptitude, and it's the kind of person who um, isn't good at chess. It's someone who's good at chess when you've got five seconds to yeah. make a move, and every minute some voice shouts some new rule on the board, like queens become pawns, and so they constantly have to. They identify that Sam is actually this kind of mind, um, and. He goes into the Wall Street, spends a few years, and is quite good at it. And what those, those firms are doing, and they sit at the center of the markets now. The center of the markets, the people who make prices in the markets, it's not Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley anymore. It's Jane Street and Citadel and Virtu. It's these firms. Nobody's ever heard of them, really, but that's it's where the action is. And he's engaged in like exploiting inefficiencies, but tiny inefficiencies. And he's sitting there while he's there, and the inefficiencies in the normal financial markets are very small. This thing happens. It's called crypto. And crypto's been around for a while, but 2017, it explodes. Mm -hmm. And it comes, goes from being a, some billions of dollars to trillions of dollars. And he looks at it, and he says, this is so much less efficient than anything I'm doing. I'm going to jump in there and do Jane Street for crypto. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to have to get into effective altruism at some point. We, but he, we will. But we, he we, gathers yeah. 20 effective altruists, most of whom have no experience in financial markets, and sets out to create a hedge fund. And that's Alameda Research, that's founded in Berkeley at the end of 2017. That has a tumultuous path. There is a radical foreshadowing of what's going to happen in FTX in Alameda Research, 
where it blows up, half the people think Sam's a crook and leave, but then it gets put back together and it succeeds. As he's doing this, the, the opportunities start to shrink. Like when he gets in it, the moment he gets in it, you can buy a Bitcoin in the United States for like $800 and sell it in Japan for $1,000 at the same time. There are these crazy inefficiencies. But he's only about six months ahead of the firm he just left, the Jane Streets of the world. So the margins get So erased. the margins are going to collapse. Yeah. And he starts to see that happening. And at the same time sees that um, like the, the, there are a lot of exchanges where crypto trading happens. There are you know, 30, 40, they're all, a lot of them been created and there are a lot of them in the world then. That these exchanges are not really suited to big institutional traders. So he gets the idea we're going to create a big institutional grade futures exchange. But he himself has had so little real experience interacting with actual human beings uh, other than his little math and effective yeah. altruist groups. He can't imagine himself running a business that has customers, ordinary people. When you run exchange, you're kind of a carnival barker. And he, he doesn't think he could actually do it. So he tries to persuade all these other exchanges to take the thing he's designed and give him a cut. That was his way he thought, and no one wanted to do it. So he gets backed into creating an exchange, and this is FTX. So he's got the hedge fund, he creates an exchange. He's got the, he's a gambler, he yeah. creates a casino. And this is a uh, middle of 2019. And he creates a casino that is instantly, like, well, instantly. After a few months, it's clear it's going boom. And uh, within, what, 18 months? Yes. Uh, venture capitalists are valuing his business as a $40 billion enterprise. It's, it's generating a billion dollars in revenues, and it's a very simple business. It's, it's like tr gamblers come, they make their bets, and you take a little slice of each bet. It, it should be pretty riskless. Um, problem is, he's got this thing, other, this old business on the side that's gambling on his exchange. And I've said, it got me in a lot of trouble, and I don't understand why, I'm trying to explain to people that this, isn't, this is not actually a Ponzi scheme, that the, the exchange itself is a, is a really good business, and if he just had the exchange and gotten rid of that, that trading operation, he'd be sitting on a gold mine. And it's part and of the reason that story is so baffling. Well, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, a lot of surprises in the book. One really wonderful surprise is this um, Easter egg on the so this is, can which, I tell which, me, which is, I'll hold it up for the camera and perhaps you can talk about it. Okay, so that. And how it relates to. So a little tiny backstory. Yeah. So um, Sam Bankman-Fried, a person who um, sensed that he, he had his competitive advantage in semi-chaotic environments. That if things are moving fast and changing all the time and unstable, that's where he was best. Proceeds to create lots of unstable semi-chaotic environments is his, his alameda research and this exchange and among the the received wisdom from grown-ups that he rejects is the idea that you need job titles or organization charts or even lists of the employees who work for you and um, this thing grows to be a 450 person organization and nobody knows exactly where they fit in the organization because sam is forbidden like there's some job titles, but they don't match the job. Some people want a title, he gives them a title, but it doesn't have anything to do with what they do. And there's, his environments tended to have a lot of discontent in them, unhappiness, because people were not being emotionally serviced. Mm -hmm. um, and Sam would bring in people to kind of sub, and subcontract the, 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 the servicing of their emotional needs of the employees to them. And one of the people he does this with is his own psychiatrist. He has a psychiatrist who's been back in the Bay Area, who's emerged as essentially the psychiatrist to effective altruists. Yeah. And Sam says, could you move to the Bahamas and become psychiatrist to FTX, to the whole business? Because yeah. everybody's screwed up. And everybody's got FTX a problem. FTX had moved to the Bahamas. Everybody moved yeah. to the Bahamas. And so the psychiatrist's name is George Lerner, gets there. And instantly he has 100 patients want to go sleep, lay on his yeah. couch yeah. and tell him about the problems with work. And George realizes that he can't understand what these people are talking about unless he has an organization chart. And so through therapy, he starts to create an organization chart and secretly keeps it because he knows if Sam finds out, Sam's gonna be furious. So George, when it all blows up, hands me a, you know, a thumb drive with this thing on it and says, nobody knows it exists, I'm vanishing, I'm getting out of here, but here it is. And I've been watching a great amusement as 
the like the bankruptcy people when they get up and say we 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 still don't know who's who worked for this place and there's no organization chart and here it is it's and it, and it actually is quite a, quite a good organization chart but i just i love that it took the shrink to figure out what the hell's going on inside of Sam Bankman-Fried's world uh, and uh, and so we stuck it on the inside of the dust. I mean, it says we'll, we'll skip around a little bit, but what does it say to you about Sam that he had this devoted um, relationship with his therapist? I mean, he, clearly he was trying to. Sam wasn't devoted to the therapist. The therapist was devoted to Sam. And, and but he stuck with it. He st the th this is what the therapist was quite open. He said Sam never talks about his personal problems. Sam regards his whatever his social personal problems are as intractable and he thinks no point in discussing them. Sam wants to talk about his business problems and he wants to talk about how to, especially how to handle other people. So Sam would roll in with a sack of like employee issues, dump them on the lap of the shrink and ask him, well, how do I resolve this? And meantime, everyone else was coming to the shrink, shrink to, to talk yes. about Sam. Yes. I mean, it was, it, it was a sitcom. Uh, and, and the, um, so the shrink ends up being, not even called a shrink anymore. They call him senior performance mm -hmm. coach, and and uh, and he, he, he had as about as good a view of the organization as anybody. And so, what what does this tell you about the collapse, or what would lead to the collapse, or why um, FTX was put at risk to support Alameda? It's so among the important, yeah. I think, facts have in your head as you're trying to understand what happened is perhaps Sam Bankman-Fried was cynical from beginning to end, though I don't think so. But the employees completely believed in the place to the point, and because so, they saw the profits, yeah. the import, that they had, almost all of them had their, all of their wealth on FTX. Many of them had recruited like cousins and parents and to have their wealth on FTX. The, 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 the whole crew went down with the ship. And, um, and so there was this, this thing that was a real business, and most of the people who work for it just thought of it as a real business. There's this other thing that sort of bams in her life, and it's Alam this Alameda Research thing. And the question, the question is, like, why did he keep it running? Why was it allowed to put at risk not just all of his employees, but himself. Mm -hmm. You know, when Forbes comes to say, figure out what Sam Bankman-Fried is worth, they don't think Alameda Research is worth anything. It's, it's just this stake in this thing. And it would have been just ridiculously easy in the beginning of 2022 for Sam to just get rid of Alameda Research and have and and have all the money where it was supposed I to mean, be. I mean, one one of the really clever things about the book is that it is a whodunit, but you aren't the only you aren't the only detective. I mean, there are all of these people you're talking about. A number of them are characters in the book, and they're also in search of what happened. That's right. Your path runs parallel to a whole bunch of them. Maybe you could. Is so, there, so, yeah. so it was interesting to watch when it collapses. These people try to figure out what just happened to them. I mean, it's been still interesting that three of the government's witnesses in the trial have independently said to me, I can't wait to read the book because I want to understand what happened. I don't know what happened in our own company. But one of the characters who I just loved, and I mean, the way the book's yeah. structured is I'm bouncing between Sam and people watching Sam. And these people who are watching Sam are people who are joining the effort. And it's, it's sort of a crease. It's, you get all the important characters in the story and their views of him. The last, I think it's the last character, is when, when the place collapses. Well, so right after I talk to this director friend of mine, the place collapses. And two days later, he says, can I direct the movie? You know, it's like, this is what an act three, you know? And, and uh, but the place collapses and they all panic, the people in the Bahamas. They all, they flee. It was, it was crazy how fast everybody was gone. They, 50 you know, corporate cars left at the airport with their keys inside kind of thing. Everybody's gone, except for Sam, the psychiatrist, his parents, and this woman who was, her, she's on here, um, her title was chief operating officer. And she said, I don't know how this place operated. She was the chief operating officer. It drove her crazy, this Chinese woman named Constance Wang, it drove her crazy that this had all happened under her nose and she didn't understand it. 
And she, she also figured out that Sam had not paid her quite as much as she thought he'd been, had been paid. So she was furious. She had a, there's a vengeance. She decides to stay for, she ends up staying for two months just to grill Sam every day, to run around, gather, to, she played Columbo. Yeah. Actually, she was more like Sherlock because she had a friend who was her, who played Watson and trying to figure out what was going on. And what was so interesting, so I told the story. And did Sam subject himself he to He subjected this himself to it because he needed yeah. her because he needed people to talk to, he needed people yeah. who spoke Chinese to talk to Chinese investors. Who and might you sat in on these meetings? I sat in on some of them. Yeah. But I would, what I would do mainly is I would let her go off and do what she was going to do. And she'd come back to her house and I'd debrief her about what just happened. And what she was trying to do is essentially establish for the prosecutors a case. I mean, she didn't put it that way, but she, was, she wanted to send him to jail. She was so angry. And she knew a lot. Like she had, the, she had more tools than I would have had to ask him questions about this and that. Mm -hmm. um, and what was, it was, I mean, it was more fun than me doing that to him, yeah. to watch her do this to him. But what was peculiar about it is that even though she, to the end, it's like she doesn't believe his story, yeah. she can't disprove it. She, like, she, she's unable to find the thing that she could hand to the prosecutors and say, here, this will do it. So, and, and, um, and so that even people that close yeah. with a motive were, I mean, it's that hard. So, so that's really curious. So maybe you could give us, okay, one piece of evidence Yep. That he's guilty. Yep. One piece of evidence that he is innocent, and one piece of evidence that he was just amazingly sloppy. So you have one free. He's not. I don't have okay. an innocent story. Uh, I have an amazing sloppy story and a and a guilty story. Okay. Give us and, one for and, and, for so each. Sort of like the, and I don't have a. Yeah. I, I, no. My so before we do that. Okay. I spent 250 pages avoiding answering the question okay. whether Let's, he should be acquitted or convicted or whatever. I didn't think that was yeah. my job. I thought it was the reader's job. I thought, I'm going to give you everything I know. No, I'm just asking. I'm gonna, no, no, I'm going to okay. give you everything I know, yeah. and I want to see how you feel about okay. it. Okay, I thought it was a very even-handed question. Just okay, so no, but, I'm, yeah. so, but yes. Okay. So um, the, uh, it's very clear, I mean, and this is in the book, that Sam and, so what people need to know is what happened. Yeah. So the money that was supposed to, simple. The money that was supposed to be on FTX. You're a, you're a crypto investor. And there is the accounting for those who want to read the book yes, on the page. Yes, nice but, Michael but, Lewis account of this. Yes, Ernst but there's supposed to be like $15 billion of customer deposits tell like they're in a bank in cold storage on FTX. And when the thing starts to unravel and there's rumors that there's a problem there and customers want their money back, it's not there. Instead, it's in his private hedge fund. And the question is, everybody agrees with this. There's no like disputing. His defense lawyers wouldn't try to dispute this. The question is sort of the, how and why that money was there as opposed to here. And um, it's, I don't think even, I mean, even Sam, he's talks, he doesn't dispute that people started to raise with him in about June of last year that they had a problem. That all of a sudden this pile, that he was thinking, Whatever he was thinking about those customers' dollars, he was thinking there's infinite dollars yeah. inside Alameda. I have $100 billion in there, so it's whatever the mess in there is, the mess in there is no big deal. The history of it is kind of important to understand it because it, it doesn't seem, and I, I mean, we're yeah. hearing the court now, but the prosecutors don't even seem to be alleging that, that the money was like actively moved, like most of it, that mostly what seemed to have happened. The first, the two pool, the two ways the money got into Alameda Research. The first was that when they created FTX in 2019, no bank would give them a bank account. So if you want to send dollars to FTX to turn it into Bitcoin, you, you, you needed had a, they would have had to have had an account. Since they didn't, they used Alameda Research mm -hmm. accounts. And I've seen the receipts where people sent money in, and sure enough, it went to Alameda. About eight and a half billion dollars piled up that way inside the place and never was moved, even Move after they got bank accounts, even after it got turned yeah. into crypto. So that's one pile. The other pile, the other source of the problem is that, and this will be in a trial, you'll hear this referred to as like the back door in the code mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, right from the beginning, when they created the exchange, Alameda Research was really, just at the very beginning, important in creating liquidity on the exchange. You, you want to come buy Bitcoin and sell Ethereum, someone needs to be on the other side of that trade. And in the very beginning, when they didn't have a lot of customers, they would be on the other side of the trade. 
and they, they for all the other customers of FTX, um, they, no other customer was allowed to really put the exchange at financial risk. And customers of a futures exchange, don't, you, when you come, you're making a, you're putting a down payment on a yep. wager. You're putting up $10 to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. And the exchange needs to monitor when your losses get to the point that you eat up that margin that you put up. And their exchange did a very good job of this, that they weren't at risk of you, David, coming in, making a big bet that blew up, and then the exchange lost a lot of money. The exception they made in their risk evaluation was to, for Alameda Research. Alameda Research was, from the beginning, allowed to lose infinite dollars, $65 billion. And there's a story, Sam's story, that that was done in the beginning because they needed, they just didn't want to, positions being automatically mm -hmm. liquidated when it was okay to have the losses. But what happens in practice is that indeed they end up in the end down of several billion dollars on trades. So several billion dollars moves into Alameda research that way. So the question is like, at what point does he become really aware of it or care about it or think it's a problem? And so there are two pieces of the or problem. Or thinking that he has infinite time. Right. I mean, there are and, stories and, of- and, and where it gets really, yeah. so right, I think he has what's several interesting points. No one asked them directly about these particular things. People would ask things like, are there conflicts of interest between Alameda Research and FTX? Or people were very concerned that Alameda Research was getting information about other people's trades on FTX, like, like high-frequency traders do in U.S. Yeah. markets. Uh, but no one's, no one, and I ask him, there's a little footnote that no one has really brought up, but they will. I ask him when I'm grilling him at one point, like, what would you have done if someone actually asked you the question, does Alameda Research get subjected to the same risk management mm -hmm. that every other trader on the exchange is? And he said, I would have either made a word salad or, or answered a different question. <laughs> and I, he's quite open about yeah. like he wouldn't have told anybody. Uh, but he didn't think it was a problem. He thought that was just like part of the business. And this is like, I mean, we can talk about why he would have yeah. thought that, but like maybe not abnormal in crypto, but really abnormal in the US financial system. I mean, there aren't any exchanges that where, the, where you're custodying the money on the exchange and yeah. you have your own hedge fund. Um, the other side of it, the bigger piece of it, the yeah. pool of eight and a half billion dollars, it's like, when did he start thinking this was really problematic? And we know if, that it's at least, it starts to become a problem, at least in his little circle, in June of last year. And he kind of admits to me, well, he admits to me that he's really focused on it mm -hmm. by kind of like October, but he doesn't deny that one of the colleagues came to him and said, we gotta, we gotta start paying attention to this in June. And this raises like what's going on in Sam Bankman-Fried's mind then. Mm -hmm. what I think what might have happened is that he thought he shouldn't have ever done it, right? I mean, it's unprincipled, all the rest, illegal. Uh, but what he's thinking, I wouldn't be surprised if he's thinking is it's not a big deal. It's drop in the bucket in the money that's in there until it isn't. Yeah. And the minute it becomes a big deal, it becomes a really big deal and they can't do anything about it. And if you are at that point a customer of FTX, you'd almost rather him not say anything because there's going to be a run on the place. So I think he probably thought at that point, we can't do anything about it except try to earn our way out of it. If I had to guess, yeah. I don't know what he thought. Um, but the, the question is like, it's, and the trial is going to get to this, like, what was the intent? How did you, how did you get in the situation? When did you get in the situation? And where did you actively start to like deceive people about this? There's no good outcome. I mean, he's probably going to jail, but it's, it is the, it is up until, you know, like May or yeah. April of last year, a instantly solvable problem, indeed a drop in the bucket of his, of his assets and bizarre that he doesn't, that he lets it get to the, the, the where it gets. Where, um, does gaming fit into this? I mean, in a way, I mean, as you point out in, in a wonderful footnote, yeah, Sam wasn't all that interested in crypto. Um, Sam discovered himself at Jane Street mostly through gaming, yep. not really through finance. Was Well, the, ga the finance is gaming. That, that, to get a job at Jane Street, what they do is test your ability to play games. It's complicated games. But, but, but he thought, I mean, I, I keep thinking of the computer and war games 
you know, and it's like, do you want to play a thermonuclear war, Professor Falcon? And it just <laughs> but it's goes, and he, so he's thinking it will just go on and on and on. I mean, there have been other moments, and you point out a couple in the book, where money that was thought to be missing was discovered again. Well, so this is where it starts to get really curious. Um, because it ha this had happened, the thing like this had happened, where he was incredibly sloppy and careless with money in 2018 when he starts his hedge mm -hmm. fund. And it's other people's money. It's, it's in that yeah. effective altruists who've given him $175 million. And the money's, there's a whole bunch of money that's just missing. And they're losing money. And half the firm starts to freak. The entire management committee, except for him, freaks. And he says, it's no big deal. We just keep creating. We'll turn, the money will turn up. And uh, half the firm leaves. And the money indeed turns up. It's, it's buried in a you know, crypto exchange in South Korea, and no one's bothered to go kind of dig it out of there. When, when, when FTX blew up, it's not like, well, when they blew up, it, supposedly there was $10 billion missing. Actually, it turns out there's $8.6 billion of customer deposits that's missing. And in the moments at, that it is unraveling, right after I've had my conversation yeah. with the film director, um, they're sitting in a room, Sam and his closest colleagues are sitting in a room trying to find money. And things are happening like one of them gets a call out of the blue from a bank in the Bahamas saying, well, we have $300 million in an account that you have, you want it back. And they didn't know they had, they didn't know they had the account. And the question was, how much of that was there? And the bankruptcy people who I interviewed, kept, one of the things John Ray, who was running the bankruptcy, would say to me when he'd show up in a meeting was, can't believe what we found again. That's like an Easter egg hunt. And, um, and he's got to the point where he has found, he, as of yeah. three months ago, $7.3 billion liquid assets. Plus, he's got this pile of other assets that's worth at least a billion, maybe more. So the question is, <clears throat> are we going to be sitting here a year from now with Sam Bankman-Fried serving a life sentence and everybody getting their money back? Yeah. That would be very Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, it's like, what just happened? You know, you just created chaos for yeah. chaos, it's safe. Is there anything you've heard from the trial that you can share? Have, have you spoken? There's weird yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I, I would, there's a part of me that thought I shouldn't even be on book tour, that I yeah. should just be in the courtroom. And the, the parts of me that, that, that what led me to feel this way is I saw the prosecutor's list of witnesses and it maps onto the characters in the book in the most extraordinary way. I mean, what are they doing? They're telling a story. They're using the same characters I use to tell the story. And I want to see how they're going to tell the story. And I want to see how these characters behave differently than the characters behave with me. Yeah. And I'm in touch with most of these characters. I've been interviewing them since it all fell apart. And they've told me what they're going to say. And some of them have said to me, I think Sam's innocent. So it's kind of, I, I want to see all this unfold in the courtroom. Um, I've not been able to do it, but I've had a, a, my podcast producer in there. And she's been sending me little reports. And I've had some reports from Sam, some Sam World. And uh, did he see the 60 Minutes? He did. So, so uh, this is a report from Sam World. So 60 Minutes did a piece, on, a big piece on the book last Sunday. And I got this call from one of Sam's uh, like PR people saying, you're not going to believe what happened. Uh, uh, Sam watched 60 Minutes in jail with his, with his uh, prison guards and his cellmates who were, he said, and he said, the former president of Honduras and the former attorney general of Mexico. And, <laughs> and that, and that uh, I said, well, how did it go? He yeah. said, they all loved it. Yeah. And, and, and afterwards, the prison guards were asking Sam for crypto advice. And, and uh, so, yeah. so I heard that. But it's like this weird stuff like that's been happening kind of by the moment, yeah. but it's not really pertinent to the trial. I find it bizarre. I had this, I had this call today that there were three people in the courtroom during the trial reading the book. And like the, with the book open while people are testifying, right. and that, and the character, someone was testifying today who's an important character in the book. Uh, this is this, this this jamming together of this narrative. Yeah, I mean, I did have the view that in the beginning that it's a story war here that you've got a defense telling a story and the prosecution telling a story, and they're both working with quite limited sets of information that the prosecution hasn't been able to talk to Sam. 
and the defense hasn't been able to talk to the, many of the witnesses, and nobody saw what it was like before it all fell apart. And I know them all, right? And so it's a third story that's being injected into this into the story war. And about the person at the center of the story, I mean, you write about Sam needing to teach himself facial expressions. Right. Um, something that, you know, comes up when you're talking to him. And, and you know, not only is he, not only do people lose a lot of money, not only is he pleading not guilty or expressing remorse. We live in a society <clears throat> right. that really wants a villain, wants yep. to have a clear decision. He's not helping himself, is he? No. I mean, he was, he, he, I mean, by what, by, by... Is he capable of showing remorse? He I mean, would, he, no. Uh, expressing it, or empathy? Or it's more, it's like, it's, he is doesn't empathy have empathy for it's like losses? He, he can express how he doesn't have empathy. Uh, so, I, I, so, no, I don't think he's, he won't be good at it. Uh, so, I don't, his behavior is interesting, right? Yeah. That, that if you look at crypto land, there have been many of these convulsions that have happened. It's not a bad heuristic that if it's a crypto business, there's something wrong with it and that it's going to blow up. And it's happened a lot in crypto, exchanges, hedge funds, all the rest. And the people who run them usually head for the hills when, they, when it blows up. They either disappear in the bowels of Central Europe or they go to Dubai, someplace where there's not an extradition treaty. Sam may not a step in that direction, is... In, has been nothing but consistently insistent that he is innocent and is going to take the stand. So all odd behavior. For, so you're talking about someone who does not think he had fraudulent intent. Now, it doesn't mean that anybody else believes him, but he, I think he believes that. Do you think that is tied? You, you talked a little bit about effective altruism. Right. Um, and there's an argument that effective altruism is sort of having it both ways. It permissions you to do anything. Right. You can do water. anything. Right. Have, please have okay. a sip of water. Um, you can do anything mm -hmm. so long as where you put the money that you gain from whatever you've done to a good cause. Um, and that doesn't really require you to make a moral choice, does it? So are you saying that the effect of altruists take the view that the ends always justify the means? It sure sounds like you could the make bit. that argument. Yeah, they, they do kind of make that argument. Uh, Which is that that's you can play play the game as long as you can, as long as you're in so effective altruism. One of the ways that I thought about this story, there was I had several like, um, I don't know, like guiding thoughts yeah. as I was going through, that I was watching a trial run of artificial intelligence, uh, that I was watching someone who had who had you'd be you'd given them an instruction, and the instruction was maximize the dollars you make to give to, to the causes that will prevent or, or defray or lessen the existential risks to humanity. And there's a list of existential risks, pandemics, AI, whatever they are. But, but and that was, that was the goal. You, and the problem with AI is that if you tell it to do something, if you don't tell it how to do it, that it will do all kinds of perverse things. So you say, you know, get me a table at the Four Seasons restaurant for right. dinner on Thursday, and it sees that the tables are all booked, and it starts to kill the people who have reservations so that you can get a reservation. Mm -hmm. And that's, the pro that's, a, that's one of the kind of dystopias yeah. that AI sort of uh, you know, might lead to. And I felt, I did feel with them that it was a bit like that. And it wasn't, it, 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 it wasn't that I thought they were malicious, it was just I thought that they'd been given the instruction and without being told what they, what they could and couldn't do to get to where they were going. It, it makes me, you know, and Patty referenced your writing about parenthood. A, a colleague made an observation to me today about the book as being a parentless book. Ooh, that's um, interesting. That, you know, she read through it and everyone has either a vexed relationship with their parent or their parent is non-existent. Is that something, and, and you've, you know, you've written really in an incredibly funny way, but also a very realistic way about being a parent. Is that something that occurred to you as you were wandering through this world? Well, his, his childhood is revealing. And the fact that his parents very quickly give up on the idea that they can parent him the way you'd parent a normal child. Um, at a very young age, their parents were very social. I mean, they had a social world. And you talk to the people in that world who come over to dinner at their house, Many of them said a similar sort of thing, that they thought 
the parents were both afraid for and of Sam, that they felt like they didn't have like a way into him and that they were really worried about what was going to happen to him in the world when he's a little kid. And the mom, uh, I mean, she's quite open about it. She said I, when he was like eight or he was a little kid, you know, we do try to do things that were a little kid like, like she took him to an amusement park and she said, we're going from ride to ride. And, uh, he's just looking at me. And I, I looked down and he said, mom, are you having fun yet? And she said, I realized he didn't, this wasn't his thing. This was my thing. And, and then not long after that, he picks up one of the papers she's written for some abstruse law journal. And, uh, and he asks her questions about it that are better than the questions that the people who are doing the peer review are asking. And she said, I, I just, you know, at that point, I just, he's not a little kid. I, whatever that mind is, it's just does, it's not a little kid's mind. Uh, and so it is true that, and they had a very unconventional, I mean, Sam doesn't, I love him when he's talking about, this has never come up, but how he freaks out about other people when he's about eight years old, when a kid in his class mentions that Santa Claus is coming yeah. soon, and Sam realizes that other kids believe Santa Claus is real, and Sam had thought of him like Bugs Bunny, like it's just like a character, and when he realizes that other kids believe that there are these elves in the North Pole, and they drop presents for your chimney, it actually freaks him out, and he has to spend a day thinking about this, and has a very similar reaction when he's like 10, when he finds out that adults believe in God, so it's unusual in America to be to get to the age of 10 and be shocked that people believe in God, but that's mm -hmm. the household he was raised in. And he, he wasn't just, he just had a, you know, it was isolated and he wasn't introduced to many of the things that kids are introduced to. It's not probably not fair to say that he wasn't parented, but it was just, there was a distance there were, and a lack of governance. A lack, he didn't, you know, he was just, he wasn't yeah. governed. There's one passage before we wrap up that I wanted to just, you know, read because it, it ties into both your beautiful writing and sort of Sam. And it's, uh, you're in the Bahamas at the end. And you say, the road from the airport to the Albany Resort where they passed FTX's offices, Natalie wasn't easy about me trying to see them. She feared they might contain the people repossessing the company cars, which you talked about. Still, as we approached, we slowed. The guard booth was empty. The barrier was down, but blocked as little of the road as ever. There was no sign of life on the field of asphalt. The cars were gone. The jungle huts seemed entirely abandoned. Then on the far side of the lot, a figure rounded a hut and came into focus. It was Sam, all by himself, in a bright red t-shirt and shorts, walking circles around his former empire. Even at a distance, you would tell he could, you could tell he could use a shower and a shave. He walked over and climbed into the car as if he'd been expecting us. He needed a ride home, which of course raised the question of how and why he'd come to be here in the first place. You know what's weird to think about, he said, as we left the office behind? Saturday, Saturday, everything was normal. Um, and you know, that takes, that's just great reporting and wonderful craft. And I, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about a couple of your influences and inspirations. Yep. You, um, you, uh, Tom Wolf, yep. you were uh, involved in a documentary about him. It that just, just came come out. out. Yeah. Probably a showing here in a theater. I bet. It's, it's in 60 theaters. Yeah. And, and one other person is actually here, Michael Kinsley. Yep. Um, two so, people who really shaped you and your writing. And I thought, Maybe we can well, Michael Kinsley directly and Tom Wolf more indirectly. But what I got, start with Wolf, but yeah. with um, that he showed me at a very young age, like the power of just of being out there and seeing things. He had an eye on the world that was so particular and funny. Like it's just it's so he made he he made. I didn't think of it as reporting, but that's what it is uh, at the time. But it made reporting exciting, and he, persu he persuaded me that like, what actually happens if you go and watch and listen and just sit and observe, is so much richer than what the unaided imagination can do. That you can generate novelistic-like effects 
from the real world if you put in the effort to observe the real world. You see someone's foot go up and down. You and... See, or, yes, or you see, you know, you see when it's all collapsed yeah. and everybody's left, someone has taken uh, the king from the chessboard and placed it sideways on Sam Bankman Freed's computer to let him know that the king has right. been toppled. You see little, you see, there's just so much to see if you just watch. Yeah. But you've got to spend a lot of time. You can't just do it in a day. You can't do an interview over a table. You have to live with these people. So that, Wolf, got, I got th that mainly from Wolf. From Michael, uh, if I had to summarize it in a sentence, it's like most of what I write is bullshit. That, that he was so good at showing me how bad my writing was in the beginning. And so good. And, and it, it was the beginning. But, but, but because it was, because, this was it. Um, because when I was just writing, you know, because you, when you're 22 or whatever, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you know, it's great. I'm right. And, and, and what Michael Kinsley was doing was thinking and, and he'd figure out what the thoughts were that were actually here. And there would be some structure to the thought and whether it was an interesting thought or not an interesting thought. And he taught me to fall in love with the interesting thought. You know, he also removed my middle initial, my, my middle name from my byline. I handed in my first piece and it was to the New Republic when he's an editor and it was by Michael M. Lewis. And he goes, you sound like a pompous asshole. He said, <laughs> he said, he said get rid of the M. You're just going to be Michael Lewis and you know, like, you better be good because there are a lot of people named Michael Lewis. Uh, but, well, but it's, it, I rem but he was, I mean, that he had, he had, he has an incredible literary voice. Yeah. It's not my voice. It's smarter than my voice, but it's, it's, he, you, I think as you go, if this happens, it's harder for it to happen when you get older. But when you're a young writer, you sort of internalize these voices and they become part of your voice. And they become part of who you are on the page. And the Michael Kinsley BS detector is still somewhere in there. And it's fabulous to have. You know, you just worry, you worry that your, your imagination of Michael Kinsley is not as powerful as Michael Kinsley himself. So you have a pale imitation in there, but it's better than none. Well, Michael Lewis without the middle initial, <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.